It is so good to be back. It has been a crazy break, and I'm so glad to be back in the booth. I couldn't agree more, my friend. I could not agree more. Hey, today on the pod, um, we have decided that we're going to talk about resources. Um, You and I have had a multitude of experiences um, going around and through and even creating processes for providing robust professional development for teachers and working with teachers to take um, professional development, channel it into their learning environment. You and I have wrestled with budgets and we've looked at all different types of differentiated needs across divisions and across departments. Um, So that's really where I'm hoping our listeners get excited to hear from us today and talking about resources. Um, Our guest today is Jen Kamara. She's the founder of Colorful, Let's Get Colorful, a new digital multicultural curriculum for children where her first pilot curriculum unit is on India. And Jen was a featured speaker with this year's NAIS's um, People People of Color Conference. Um, And Colorful was received with rave reviews and enthusiasm. But before we get underway with the episode and today's voice, the pod will once again pause and send our sincere thanks and appreciation to the Berman School for this year's sponsorship of our entire season. For those of you who don't know, Merman's a K-8 school located in Los Angeles, founded in 1962. And since then, Merman has been a school that's been challenging and inspiring highly gifted children to become complex and creative problem solvers and multidimensional and analytical thinkers, as well as contributors and active members of the local as well as global community. So shout out to Mervyn School for their support of the season. Um, And we really appreciate how they've come alongside the podcast this year. So Amani, let's get into it. Um, I I know for me, uh, this is January. This episode will drop probably in February, Um, but it's budget season. Uh, And we've been talking as a school, we've been talking as departments, we've been talking as divisions uh, about how we're going to build next year's budget um, and therefore how we're going to allocate resources to teachers. It is never an easy process, right? Like anything else, there's pushes, there's pulls, there's big requests, there's small requests. Um, All of it translates into uh, things like um, tuition increases, but also things like what do we cut and what do we keep? Um, so for you, I imagine it's the same time of year, right? You're building budgets. Um, talk a little bit about your process. Talk about what you're hearing from your teachers. I'll tell you a little bit about what I'm hearing from mine. Well, well first, I think that it's important to recognize that we're talking about budgets during the end of and, and through a pandemic. So the whole conversation looks looks really different. Uh, to be having these types of conversations in January is late. Usually schools are budgeting in October and, and November, thinking about what the year is going to bring. So for us, we're still adjusting to the new reality of hybrid learning, how we're going to continue to make modifications and make adjustments and trying to imagine what September will look like. Yeah. Will it look more like 2019 or is it going to be more um, more like what we experienced this last year. Uh, 
Right. So the demand and expectation for, for teachers, I think, continues to be about flexibility. Right. How can they have resources, curricular resources or otherwise, that allow them to continue to be creative and innovative? Right. Uh, our schools are really built on the strength of our teachers. And what tools can we give them that help their students make these connections to, to their content, mm-hmm. see themselves in the work that they're doing, mm-hmm. not just to be represented, but to see their future and, and potential? It's one of the many reasons I'm actually really excited to talk with Jen today. Apart from the curricular stuff we're going to talk about, she's done really amazing work that around the world that she's passionate about that shows this this connection to purpose and intent that allows for us to hear that story and how our children will connect in our schools. Uh, The other part of what you said that I think is really important, thinking about the allocation part, is it really for us right now is about what gives us the most direct impact to our students today. Um, there's been a lot of time where we've thought about investments in either infrastructure, hopefully we've already done that. Right. Um, we've been thinking about how to be um, to be able to make these adjustments. Hopefully we've already done that. So now the budgetary conversation is really focused on the experience for our kids. How do we provide the support and how do the teachers develop particularly when they're doing it in greater isolation than they ever have. Yeah, yeah. I found it particularly interesting that, um, you know, all of our all of our schools on some level run pretty thin margins. Right. Um, And uh, it's been interesting to watch the past couple of years, the the sort of posture of, of of our teachers go from um, I'd love to do this. Can we have some money for that? I'd love to do this. Can we have some money for that? Um, I'd love to purchase this. I'd love to attend this conference to um, please don't take this away. Please don't take that away. But also we're trying to do exactly what you just mentioned as an, as an administration, which is to say, yeah, we're running thin and yes, we're trying to budget during a pandemic, but we still are going to fund the mission part first, right? Other things may go by the wayside, but we still need to fund those classrooms so that they can be innovators, so that those kids can see their future selves, so that um, we're still delivering on whatever aspect of our mission um, is, uh, you know, has to do with teaching and learning. And so um, it's really interesting the sort of um, sense that um, teachers are sort of showing up with and, and they're not necessarily like, you know, begging for dollars, but it is that they are worried that the, that, that cuts are going to continue to roll um, and they're going to impact their ability to, to have a, a fantastic classroom. Um, and, that, and we're trying to make the case that that's just not, that's not what we're going to do. You know, it's, it, there's some truth that, um, you know, in a tight year, sometimes the PD budget is one of the first buckets to get examined. But, um, you know, we just know that now is the time to really be delivering on our value proposition and classroom cuts is not where it's going to take place. Well, we've, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but the, the idea that professional development is a standalone budget or experience mm-hmm. is kind of out the window now at this point. This right. is all about professional development. It's yes. all about professional growth and how our schools can continue to evolve and change. Um, I, th- I think similarly, the, the experience we're having is 
people want to be selective, both with their dollars and their time, because everybody is feeling overworked. We're trying to do twice as much with half the amount of time with the intensity and fear of what's going on sort of around us. And so the other thing that, that I would say is people... People want to be reassured that we value their learning, we yeah. value their expertise, and we want to continue to support their growth. Yeah. Everybody wants to be successful. Absolutely. One of the challenges of one of the challenges of isolation is we're doing it by ourselves. We have a screen <laughs> that usually has our own picture back to us. Yeah. That 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 is 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 how we're getting our feedback. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I was thinking about and. It's part of the broader economic situation is we know this is going to be a difficult time for schools. Right. We know not all schools will be able to survive this moment. And the ones that are going to survive will become will have been very clear about who they are and and the families and students that they serve. Um, So thinking more about this conversation, the part that I'm, again, most excited about when we talk about professional development, and even this this conversation. Mm-hmm. It's how do our kids see themselves in their teachers? Mm-hmm. How do our teachers make those windows and mirrors that we've talked about all the time mm-hmm. here uh, mm-hmm. visible and allow our students to have that, that potential for growth, right. even when, and especially when they're doing it uh, via a web interface in a place where they can't get that human interaction right. that we rely on so much in our relational schools. Right. So in the little bit of um, work that, that uh, I've done to prepare for our conversation with Jen, you know, it seems like a lot of her work is geared in that K-8 space. You're in that K-8 space. Talk a little bit about how you've had conversations with teachers around the evaluation of the resources in their particular classrooms so that those windows and mirrors can be a reality or, you know, as, as your division heads are coming to you and, you know, are looking at, at acquiring, you know, new textbooks, um, you know, what's that evaluation uh, conversation been like? Um, Cause I, I can easily see that there is greater scrutiny now, but I can also see that um, on some level, there continues to be a void of, of, of really sound resources that not only A, provide that um, window and mirror, but also um, reframe um, 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 stories and reframe relationships and so on in the classroom. So are you, are you having those, I assume you're having those conversations in an ongoing way, right? I think one of the benefits of, of for us in our structure is that we're an integrated thematic curricular program. We yeah. find ways to make connections between disciplines so they're not discrete. And the idea is to make those connections and belonging um, from one discipline to the other. So nothing happens in isolation by itself. Textbooks are often hard for us to find because they tend to focus on one discipline mm-hmm. when what we really want to do is focus on the skills and competencies that give them the tools to explore it more broadly. Right. And so we we tend to borrow things and, and take things um, from, from one to make sure it covers all of, of what we need. Mm-hmm. But the analysis question is an important one because, again, we have fewer checkpoints along the way when students aren't with us 
aren't with us on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So finding ways that our students can have resources that they can continue to do learning on their own mm -hmm. to either support what they've been doing in the classroom or to explore in a new direction is has been critical. How do we mm -hmm. make resources available? Right. And then also a strong recognition that um, this is a moment that really hits a lot of the inequity in our schools. Mm -hmm. So even the concept of a textbook um, is something that isn't the same for every family. Yeah. So not everybody can come in and pick it up. Not everybody has the internet access to try the digital version. Right. How do we provide the tools to make the opportunity meet the needs of every single child and, and every single family? Yeah. So the analysis for us is, we, we want to find the right piece and then we mm -hmm. want to write, find the right supplemental pieces. Mm -hmm. And then we want to figure out how it connects not just to the logical connection. So humanities makes it easy to bring social studies and English, for example, together, or language right. arts. Right. How do we make sure that it actually covers all of the integrated disciplines, right. uh, focuses and creates time for social emotional learning and recognizes that there's not just a report at the end that our students are going to, to, to create, but a way to engage them and pull them back in to their, to their learning process. Love so it. in a strange way, we've actually come farther away from taking something off the shelf mm -hmm. because it, it's always been hard to find the right fit. And mm -hmm. we've been able to sort of make it work. Um, and I say we, not just my school, I think right. independent schools broadly, right. uh, when I say we, um, and we're, we're working harder and harder to find those areas and, and the approaches that inspire us to take that work to the next level with our students, with our families, yeah. uh, and, and, and with our colleagues. Uh, the last thing I'll say here, too, is I mentioned earlier the idea of integration and connection. Mm -hmm. the, the other, I think, really important part of curriculum development in this year has been finding ways both in time and structure for teachers to continue to work together. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been a really important part of our analysis. Yeah. How are the, how do we find those things that can cross over right. um, as much as possible? Yeah. I think that's the perfect on-ramp to bring Jen into the conversation. Um, I am going to take the liberty of reading a little bit of Jen's professional bio. Um, and then we are going to spend a little bit of time talking about about Jen um, and the things that are not on the bio, including the work that she's doing um, as a new entrepreneur. So Jen Kamara is the founder of Colorful, a digital multicultural curriculum for elementary and middle school kids. Colorful is available for schools and families. Prior to Colorful, Jen supported digital health startups solving for a lack of patient diversity in clinical trials and radiology as a product marketing manager. And before that, Jen used her chemical engineering undergrad degree and drug development experience to found a nonprofit that helped improve maternal health care in her home country of Sierra Leone, which used to be the worst place in the world to be a mom. Her nonprofit helped provide care to women at 107 health centers in just the first nine months before the program was adopted nationwide by the Ministry of Health. In terms of background, Jen is of Ukrainian and Sierra Leonean heritage. She loves languages and learning from people of different cultures. Most of all, she enjoys playing with nieces who are 13, 10, 7, and 4. She graduated with a Master's of Business Administration from Stanford and a Master's in Public Administration from Harvard. A passion of Jen's is that 
prominent through her life projects is equity and ensuring access to it. Jen Kamara, welcome to the Straight A's podcast. Ooh, thanks for having me, Andre and Imani. What Absolutely. an honor. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I'm a big fan. Like I said, I've, I've listened to the podcast. I think you're doing great work and just really excited to have this chat with you. Absolutely. And we're excited to hear more about you as well as more about Colorful. That is for sure. So we're, we're grateful that you are a guest on our show. Amazing. You know, as you're talking, Andre, I'm also, and I was keeping notes as you were going through the bio, I think Jen must be 97 years old. You actually have accomplished all of Gotta these be. things along the way. Oh, you're too um, kind. Make, makes you wonder what we're doing with our lives, right? <laughs> you know, you're Jen, part of what jumps out is an amazing story. Uh, as I listen to Andre read all of that, there's just so many questions. How do you get from project marketing managing to actually doing this work around the world? I did a little bit mm. of Googling and managed to see some of your your other work that he didn't even touch on in, in terms of this. Uh, tell me, just tell yeah. us a little bit about about who you are outside of the bio, because there's another piece of this context that we just have to understand. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, it's been a winding journey and I love this expression of it's not the destination, it's the journey, because I really feel that that resonates with me. Uh, so it started, I was born in Ukraine, but I grew up in Sierra Leone. My mom's from Ukraine. My dad's from Sierra Leone. And I grew up in Sierra Leone during the, the civil war. There was a 12 year coup war there over diamonds. If you've seen Blood Diamond, you've heard yeah. of this. Conflict diamonds yeah. are really bad um, and really tore my country apart. And I actually feel very privileged to have had that life experience. Um, it's taught me a lot, given me perspective. Our house was burnt down. Um, yeah, and that's not easy. I say that very nonchalantly now, mm. but uh, that was when I was seven. And I also had a dad who he made it a point to go back to Sierra Leone. He's a doctor and he wanted to, to be there and care for people because we had about 50 doctors for about 5 million people in the country and he wanted to be one of them. And so I think just from a young age, I, I was raised by just having those values of wanting to care for community, wanting to give back, and then just having survived a war and having had really strong family with my mom and my dad, um, I think has just given me a lot of resilience and wanting to give back and this whole equity I, I grew up around a lot of inequity so my dad was one of seven for instance and he was because he was the youngest he just happened to have more time to be able to be sent to school whereas the older kids couldn't uh and then as a doctor we lived in one of the poorest parts of the of freetown the capital city and lots of people that my neighbors were living on a dollar a day uh, and so I just always felt that I was very fortunate to have parents who could afford to send me to school and and we're all born, I think, with the same amount of potential and not all of us sadly get that opportunity to make the most of it. And so I think that's a backdrop for a lot of what's made my life what it is and my motivations. It's amazing as you, even as you tell this story, it, I, just the idea of having your house burnt down at seven yeah. and, and what that has sort of meant in terms of a mark for you. It also helps understand a little bit of the work you did around Ebola and some of the other mm -hmm. uh, areas in terms of 
helping to understand how these diseases have impacted communities. Can you talk a little bit just about what it meant to to be in those communities as an educator, um, even yeah. not maybe as, as, as helping to raise awareness around these challenges? Yeah, so I left uh, Sierra Leone after I finished high school. I was fortunate to get a scholarship to study in the US. That's how I made the move here. It gave me a ton of opportunity because you in the US you can work and as long as you work hard you can make something of yourself and so when I graduated I wanted to go back to Sierra Leone and I partnered with Harvard Med School and the Ministry of Health and founded a nonprofit so that we could work with um, mothers who actually postpartum hemorrhage is the leading cause of death maternal death around the world in developing countries and Sierra Leone was one of the worst places to be a mom um, and so we were or originally there to solve postpartum hemorrhage to help tackle it to teach health workers how to prevent it because again there's only 50 doctors and most women are seen by health workers um, and then while we were there Ebola happened actually and you can imagine how uh, fraught the health system was because it was already fragile, not enough resources. And so then we as already educators and teachers, we were there to teach health workers about how to do these new procedures. We're also found ourselves teaching and educating health workers to be to have a septic technique, so to be clean, because with Ebola, it was a virus, it was being spread because there was lack of running water and um, lack of gloves and protective equipment. And it was fascinating to be there at that time. Um, I ended up getting sick with malaria. My family freaked out because the symptoms are very similar to Ebola. Um, and but it turns out I was fine. But it was, again, very formative and very rewarding experience. I again, every time you tell yeah, the story, right. it, it, it <laughs> came back to like, uh, it, it was it was rewarding and informative. You mentioned something here that that actually is a really good segue into the other part of your work is you talked about being there as a as an educator. So helping mm -hmm. to, to make sure people understand the causes and solutions to, to, right. to Ebola and other diseases. How did you start thinking about or when did you start thinking about yourself as an educator? Was there a teacher in your life that had a particular influence? Was it about this model that your family sort of presented about how they could change their community? When did you wake up and say, hey, this is this is how I'm going to make my impact? You know, that's such a great question. Again, it's been a long time coming. But first off, I want to say I think educators are just heroes. Like if you think about it, these are the folks who are like sharing all these values that make up human beings, future generations, etc. So this is a huge, huge important role that we have uh, in, in, in our communities. Um, I think my first great teachers were my mom and my dad. I think my dad for these values that he instilled and just by, by showing we never had a chat or a talk. It was just he did. And I saw and I learned and I fell in love with this. And then my mom. So my mom, and like I mentioned, we grew, it was a war. So actually schools were closed and she actually taught me, did some homeschooling. Um, but very significantly, I think uh, at an early age, I was three or so. She taught me English, math, um, I went to first grade at four years old because of her, because she really just instilled these good habits of you work hard, just giving me the basics, um, and then just giving me this confidence that I can learn and, and be independent and work hard at school. And so she was very important and formative. Um, 
And, and again, just because of them, I think I wanted to always give back, especially to my community. Um, so I'll stop there and see <laughs> and, and not be too long winded. Well, I, I know there's lots of questions also uh, about about your family and the influence that has had. Mm -hmm. I, I will also confess that I did stumble across your wisdom from my mother piece from the oh, book, right. which, which also <laughs> just talked about the role of mothers. Um, right. And uh, it's it's so wonderful to hear the important influence of your family. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and Jen, I think there's I think there's a little bit of those um, of those nieces that was part of the inspiration for Colorful. Yes. Um, so my nieces. So right. So how Colorful came about, I would say, I. Um, so I grew up biracial, right? So I grew up in Sierra Leone and in Sierra Leone, I was told I was white, which is fascinating. I don't know if you've heard or you've seen Trevor Noah and read his book. Mm -hmm. He's from South Africa as this comedian who now hosts the show in the US. Um, right. But his, his book was, it just spoke to me because I felt so similarly growing up in Sierra Leone. Um, and I was never cool enough to be like 100% Sierra Leonean and it always bothered me. I'd get really annoyed uh, with, with with folks, uh, with kids especially. And then I would go for a summer to see my grandma in Ukraine. Yeah. And obviously I'm black in Ukraine. Uh, so I was always not not anything. Right. Um, and then I, I would come home though and my parents raised me as, oh, you're this and you're this and it's, it's, it's okay to be both. Right. Um, and fortunate to have that. I came to the US for college and we know in the US I'm black in the US. And so I've just always grown up being told what I am. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I just, I just lived with it. Never really thought, never sat, don't remember sitting down and thinking too, 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 too deeply about it before mm -hmm. I came to the U S and then, but my brother is 12 years older. And so he has four daughters and the yeah. oldest is 13. The youngest is four. And you, you have birthdays. One of them just turned seven yesterday and we had a birthday party for her yesterday, uh, and Christmas and, yeah. and, I really care about heritage and I think it's a really important thing, like being able to speak your languages and understand where your ancestors come from and just valuing and celebrating your culture is really important to me. And so I've looked for material to be able to share with them because Sierra Leonean is not easy. It's not like very common. Mm -hmm. It's not, there's like six, seven million of us. Uh, and then, especially in the US and then also being Sierra Leonean and Ukrainian and American, which is what they are. Mm -hmm. um, and I never really found great resources. I love that we're having more and more storybooks come up now, which is beautiful for mixed kids, like colored kids, all of this right. stuff. Um, and so that's kind of how Colorful started is I, I, we actually went to Sierra Leone together. We took them and I was able to show them, but I wanted oh, wow. them to have this on an ongoing basis. Uh, and, and so like it was 2019 uh, Christmas, I was looking for stuff and couldn't find any books and decided I would write something uh, mm -hmm. for them and started and made it a resolution for 2020 and started writing and then COVID happened. Uh, and had a lot more free time, not commuting or seeing anyone. Right. <laughs> uh, and then started working on it deeply, talked to other families, um, realized how pressing of a need there was. I was actually floored to realize that there aren't really, there. there's not an abundance of resources like this. Yeah. Actually, what I'm trying to build, I haven't found. I don't like, so it just felt, I felt really compelled to want to do something about that. Right. And you mentioned 
a little bit about, you, you mentioned heritage. Um, uh-huh. Tell me a little bit about how your family has continued, in, maybe in addition to the trip to Sierra Leone, how has the uh-huh. family continued to talk about heritage while being citizens of the United States? And uh-huh. have you seen any of that uh, work that your family's been doing um, transferable to some of the work that you're doing with Colorful? Yeah, it's hard. I think it's hard, especially if I take my brother and his wife and um, his wife is great too. So she's American, but she's great in terms of caring about culture, but it's hard because they work, kids go to school, kids, they try to, they try to have, make sure the kids have opportunities. And so kids have extracurriculars and all of this opportunities they didn't have. And so life gets busy. And so whenever I come, I take it as my auntie duty to be like, (laughs) Oh, let's talk about this and that. Uh, (laughs) And, and it's, I, it's hard, I think, to do it on an ongoing basis. Apart from this trip to Sierra Leone that we took three um, Christmases ago. Um, And I think that's, again, where the need for Colorful came, Mm -hmm. where I just didn't find anything that could be what like something that Amani was talking about resources for Mm -hmm. kids that could supplement what they're learning in school, that could supplement what families want, that mm-hmm. is, it's an easy way for them to stay in touch with culture, but go deep, not just be so shallow. Because a lot of what I was finding was, oh, let's go to India and mm-hmm. learn, like, let's see what food they eat. And then what do they do in China? And then what do right. they do in Africa? And Africa is a country, right. not a right. continent. <laughs> and then what do they do in, I don't know, yeah. South America, whatnot. And yeah. I just, I was a little offended by those because I think there's a lot more to a culture than just a trip. Yeah. Or, or a vacation. And it's an ongoing thing. You have language, you have food, you have art, you have history, sure. um, you have dance, you have lots that goes in, that goes into it. And Values, I wanted sure. exactly. And I wanted something that would both um, allow kids to appreciate and love their own heritage, but also mm-hmm. ha- have them feeling a sense of curiosity and openness and welcome welcoming to other cultures because right. again like we're becoming such a diverse country especially in cities Amani live in New York um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like more than 50% of the population is going to be multicultural yeah. and this is of huge importance like if you just look politically even like with the last administration mm-hmm. and how we have a huge need to be able to talk to one another and love one another and love comes easier than hate like Mandela said and yeah. I, I wanted something that would be easy and accessible to parents and teachers across the US that Mm -hmm. didn't cost an arm and a leg where Mm -hmm. their kids could have access to something that would teach their kids things like this. Sorry, parents. And you started with India. Is there there a particular Mm. reason why you started with India? Yeah, India that was my felt question. Like, I wanted to know India, that. <laughs> India felt like a great challenge because if you look at India, it's a country of like 20 something languages and cultures within itself. And so it felt like a great place to start to just illustrate this sense of depth that was needed to understand a culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was really excited to start with that. And I've been learning a lot about how to share stories and go into a culture with a, a culture that has so many subcultures without offending mm-hmm. others mm-hmm. And, and this and, and things like that. Um, so India has been a great challenge for us. Uh, and then the other thing that I had to consider was also looking at, um, I would have loved to start with Sierra Leone or Ukraine, but I'm mm-hmm. in the US and there's just not as many Sierra Leoneans and Ukrainians I could have give me feedback on this 
immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was also looking at population sizes, demographics in the U.S. and and a combination of those two is how we how I started with India. Got it. I know Bonnie's chomping at the bit for another question, but before I, before I let him do that, um, for you know, this is obviously a podcast, um, and so for those who um, haven't seen any of the resources. Uh, mm -hmm. paint, us, paint us a picture. Um, if someone, um, a parent who might be listening or a teacher who might be listening, um, uh, acquires the, uh, the India piece, uh, yeah. open, it up, open it up for us. Tell us what they're, tell us what they'd be seeing. Tell us what they'd be looking at. Tell us what the, what, what, what your intent was behind, um, mm -hmm. the, the construction for the child. Paint us a picture there. Yeah. So I would say, it's multicultural activities for your kids and India specifically focuses on Indian culture and heritage. Uh, and it's made for kids that are of Indian heritage and kids that are not. So it's made for others. Again, goal, goal is twofold to build appreciation of culture and curiosity and welcoming of others. So when you open it up, we have, I built this all just based off of my own needs and things that I was frustrated with not existing already. Mm -hmm. And so when you open it up, you start with two kids, Leika and Akash, their sister and brother. They were born in the U.S. and their parents are of Indian heritage. They don't get to go to India as much and they're struggling to learn about Indian culture. And they want to be able to be proud of their culture and share with their friends, just like how in the U.S. you can go get a burger or whatnot mm -hmm. and it'd be very normal. They want to also be able to share with their friends, things like that. And so each week is different and goes into a different aspect of culture. The first one talks about people and heroes um, and gives a brief overview of India. And then you dive into some heroes like our vice president, Kamala Harris, who's of mm -hmm. Indian uh, heritage as well sure. and great. others. Uh, and then kind of asks the kids, like asks Leka and Akash to think about their own personal heroes. Mm -hmm. um, they share that and then asks the the audience, the kids who are playing along with them to think about their own heroes. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's some activities there. The next week, we talk about arts. And so we talk about various forms of art in Indian culture, like henna um, and other things. And, and Leka and Akash are learning about this while they're at a party with their mom and dad. And their mom and dad have other kids that they friends uh, and their kids that come to the party and they're all learning about these Indian forms of art together. They make some arts and crafts and the kids who are reading along with Colorful can play along as well, or even share about arts and crafts in their culture. And so it's meant to almost fool kids that they're learning. Yeah. They're not, it's not meant to be like, oh, now let's come study. It's meant to be really fun. Right. Uh, and, and meant to be story-based. So each mm -hmm. week there's a story that's happening with Leka and Akash in their lives that's fun and light. Um, and they get to learn along the way too. I love it. I love it. That's great. What, what is the target age? What, what is the sort of age that you're thinking about when you're telling the story? Yeah. So right now we're working with ages three to 10 and we have kind of two versions, three to six tend to need help from their parents and then seven to 10 are more independent. And so for the three to six year olds, we have some more, some added additional help. Uh, but eventually the goal is for this to be K through 12. Uh, and with older kids, we'll, we'll have more social justice themes. But the idea is for this to be really light and accessible again, something that kids can just pick up. Uh, eventually, I'd love this to be an app or a website, obviously, and kids can just pick it up and it'll be a really guilt-free way for kids to be on technology, learning and playing with their friends and learning about other cultures and their own. Um, 
and something that parents are excited for their kids to be on and teachers are excited for kids to be on. Part of what's inspiring about this story and actually the other parts of your story you've told is you seem to identify problems. You're looking for gifts for your nieces and mm. you can't find them. So you create them. Uh, that seems to be a, as you identify a problem, you come up right. with solutions. Uh, mm -hmm. What's so, so what's the next chapter? So if it's not, let, let's assume it's not uh, Sierra Leone or Ukraine next. Oh, yeah. What's the next, what's the next one after that? Where does this go? Yeah, I think I'm putting my business hat now, my entrepreneur hat on, and I 100% am planning on uh, educating people, the world, about Sierra Leonean and Ukrainian heritage for sure. Good. But I think initially, first, we'll, we'll probably, again, just look at the U.S. demographics and, and uh, probably do China um, next and Mexico. And then after that, I'd love to do West Africa and I'll and I'm deciding between Nigeria and Sierra Leone and seeing what makes sense. I'd love to have um, just families and schools be like, get, get more reception and just get more feedback. And I think right now what I'm focused on is just making sure that we are telling the story well, we're, we're giving the activities in a really engaging way that also fosters learning. And just as soon as I feel really, really that we, we really nailed that, then I think I'll... I'll diverge into more smaller uh, cultures like Sierra Leone, like Ukraine. And so hopefully sooner rather than later. I wasn't trying to put more pressure on you to use Sierra Leone. <laughs> I was actually trying to take hey, the pressure off. She fought a, she fought a, she fought a <laughs> war. I don't think you can put much more pressure on her. This is clearly, why clearly. <laughs> no, but that's awesome. That's a great question. Thinking a little bit about working with, with schools uh, now, um, can you talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing with, with educators in terms of either researching this work or sort of where it goes next? I know you've had a chance to mm -hmm. speak at the People of Color Conference and, and sort of yeah. gain this exposure, but can you talk a little bit about the work that you're, you're doing with educators? Mm -hmm. So we... At the beginning of Colorful, we started working initially with families. And so we have, I was lucky to have some support from Stanford University and get uh, support from the School of Education there to get feedback on process. Um, and then initially we started working with families to get a sense of how parents are receiving Colorful, does it fit in their lifestyle? Uh, and to be to be honest, I think the past year has been just really hard with COVID. Like teachers, heroes re really have been really swamped, um, and and so have parents too. And so that part's been really challenging. Getting as ma as many eyes on colorful just to get feedback and make sure that we're improving improving our curriculum. Um, but that said, I think. Uh, it's just a matter, It's it's been a, a process of just persisting and persevering and just getting to more and more people. And we we had a beta this past fall, which was very, very positive uh, from families for our India curriculum. We did six weeks of content uh, and, and kids are responding positively as well as parents. Parents really liked that it was uh, easy uh, and educational. And then we, we hosted a session at, at the conference that Andre mentioned. And I was just really, um, I was blown away by how 
how teachers loved it and how teachers really resonated with what I was saying about how there isn't something like this and why is that and we need more resources like this that are easy for teachers to use as well. Um, so that was great. I'm working with some of those teachers there on potentially uh, working a version of Colorful for their institutions, which is really exciting to me. Um, mm. And I think the next step for us is to continue to talk, have conversations with independent schools and other educators to see. Uh, I'm really curious to know like what their constraints are, um, what their needs are, so that I, we can figure out how can we make Colorful something that works for them and, and their institutions and get it, get it to be accessible for their kids. So that's our next step. So I'd love to hear from educators on that. <laughs> well, if there's if there's one thing Amani and I know, educators yes. don't mind giving their opinion. So amazing. <laughs> I think and you'll I'm be all able about to getting feedback. the feedback. So that's that's great. I'm here to. You learn. mentioned something. You you mentioned something else, which I think is always important, um, but has definitely been a, a different um, influence over the last few year, years, mm -hmm. or this past year rather, is the role of parents and guardians. Mm -hmm. um, we've always recognized that that's an important partnership in schools, but with so much happening remotely, there's a real need for families to be able to support mm -hmm. learning. And mm -hmm. one of the pieces I, I really appreciate about what you shared is the experience can include and really allows for the support of parents to emerge as educators in this mm -hmm. way as partners in the learning process, um, which is so critical, particularly for those younger students who may not be reading independently yet to be able mm -hmm. to have the adults in their lives all saying the same thing about yeah. what's important in the schoolwork. And in some ways, even having the families, this, this seems also like a good tool to have families um, be preservationists on some level, right? Yeah. Like preserving that heritage, passing on that heritage, um, looking at ways in which other cultures preserve heritage and learning something from that. Um, I do think that, that um, so much of the family heritage piece um, is sort of being indirectly passed down um, and transferred versus more directly um, a real teaching of the history um, and the language and the values and so on. So um, it's, this sounds like a, an awesome tool uh, on multiple fronts for families, for sure. Yeah, thank you. And I think kind of my vision is for it to be a ubiquitous tool. It should be something mm -hmm. that's really accessible. Um, I think in some, in case, many cases, families and and kids that need this the most tend to be the most underprivileged mm -hmm. um and and a lot of what i'm thinking about is how to tailor colorful so that people who can pay for it schools and families that can pay for it pay for it and we have mm -hmm. we have it be accessible to those who can't afford it um and i really think this should be again back like a basic right just like having a sense of pride and confidence in who you are mm -hmm. and being able to communicate who you are to others in, mm -hmm. in, in a way that, that is, inspires curiosity and, and learning and conversation. I think if we can raise a generation that does that well, I think then we've done a good job for the future, particularly given how, how diverse we are today. Right. right. You're, you're clearly finding your, your voice as a storyteller, and um, I'm really excited to see where this goes and how it continues to evolve. 
Um, here on the podcast, one of the things that we've tried to do at the end of each episode is leave with a little bit of advice. And I'll say it's even meant to be hopeful. The idea mm-hmm. is a start, stop, and continue. There are things that we all are doing that we need to start doing, or we haven't been doing, we need to start doing things that we should stop doing that are not helping us move forward and things that we should continue to not only see how they might turn out, but because they're making change. Um, mm-hmm. It's always important what the what the audience is too. You are an educational entrepreneur in so many different ways. <laughs> like so it. I'm trying to find find the right way to fit this and give you the option to talk about all the different ways we can solve these problems. Yeah. So as as we think about others who want to create the change that you're talking about, share their vision, share their stories, and to support teaching and learning in our widest range of schools around the world, what is it that you think educational entrepreneurs should start doing that they're not doing right now? Um, Educational entrepreneurs, I think we need to, so you asked a question earlier that I feel like, so you asked um, some of the teachers that had been really influential in your mm-hmm. life. I mm-hmm. wanted to mention uh, two. So like one, I had a great high school teacher. I swear I'm going to answer your question, Amani. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> That's all right. I'll answer it again. I swear, right. just bear, bear with me here. <laughs> but like yeah. my high school biology teacher, and I still like he was just the most caring person and he was serving kids in really like resource starved Sierra Leone. Like we didn't have textbooks. Mm. Like we had to photocopy textbooks. Uh, for like studying for exams, we had like one exam and we had to photocopy it for everyone and we'd practice and we, and anyway, so like he, he just, he was very caring and very sensitive to his kids. And he would like notice if someone wasn't getting enough sleep or maybe was doing chores at home and, and needed more study time, et cetera. He was also just so warm and fun in the way he told stories to help us remember things uh, because he was mindful of our age. And I still remember like photosynthesis and cardiac cycle and all these things because of Mr. Toure and he was awesome. And then, so I love that and how personable he was. And then second, I had two female teachers in grad school who just really showed me what I could be as a young woman. And I, I hadn't, I, like, I don't know how, I I just hadn't had other female teachers like that who were just really smart, really sharp, young too, and, and just really uh, commanded the room and demanded the best from their students. Um, And I say that to say, as educational entrepreneurs, I'd love for us to take pages out of these Mr. Ture and these professors books um, where one, just be really, start being really sensitive and personable and bring who you truly are to the table. And then from from my professors in grad school, just know that you have kids who may be looking up to you and seeing themselves and their potential for the first time and just really hold, hold that position tenderly. Um, is my answer. So I'll pair, I'll rephrase it and say, just allow those you touch to be able to see themselves in you and in the world and bringing it back to colorful, allowing kids to see themselves in the world. Um, so that's my long answer, Amani, to your question that's for good. starting. <laughs> it, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect answer and I'm gonna cheat because I don't normally ask all of them, but I, <laughs> I think also knowing, knowing what you should stop doing is another part of that question because what you shared was also really inspirational and connected and offered so many ways to see opportunity. But are there things that that 
we're seeing in the marketplace more broadly that are actually yeah. preventing progress? Are there things that entrepreneurs should, educational entrepreneurs should stop doing uh, to get out of the way for yeah. this educational revolution to occur? But all, this has been such a hard year on all of us. And I think entrepreneurship is such a tough journey too. Um, so I, I'll say to just let's, try to stop being too harsh on ourselves. So many of us are our own worst critics. Uh, this isn't the best, easiest year. We're all handling COVID as best we can, the isolation. Uh, some of us may not be achieving the goals we set out to. Uh, some of us may be just more vulnerable, more sensitive. And I'd say, let's be kind to ourselves and forgiving and treat ourselves like how we would treat our best friend, not necessarily how we always treat ourselves. Because we may treat our best friends kinder uh, than we do us. And for entrepreneurs, I think the journey is filled with so many ups and downs and the downs can feel like the lowest lows. And so like just extend a kind hand to yourself in forgiveness and patience. That is a tremendous gift. Um, I'll add the closing continue because um, part of what I really appreciate is you telling your story. You mentioned Trevor Noah and and I read his book, but I also had the opportunity to listen to his book. And he oh, reads so good. Me too. Me too. Right? I listened and, to it as well. Right. And and part of what, what you shared today is, is your truth and your story and how you're changing the world. And I think that part of the, the this year is about continuing to be open to listening to real mm -hmm. stories and being inspired by what we see to create the change that we want to have. And particularly for young people, this is the inspiration and the moment that helps us all sort of continue to grow. So I'm really honored to have been able to spend this time with you on the pod. We're excited that you, um, you, you shared your story and you put up with the two of us uh, on this, on this you, you never really know what direction you never really know what direction we're gonna go you really don't uh, but i think it's been, it's been wonderful oh it's a privilege thank you again for having me jen tell everybody who's going to be listening where they can find either more information about you or more information about colorful so our website is letsgetcolorful.com, no apostrophe. And my email is jen with two N's at letsgetcolorful.com. So J-E-N-N at letsgetcolorful.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you're an educator, I'd love to learn from you. I'd love to just collaborate. Um, and if you're an entrepreneur, I'd love to hear from you as well or whomever else was moved by this. So thank you, thank you guys for listening. Any social media? I'm not on social media. <laughs> so we're going to go website and email. Okay. <laughs> yes, I need to, I will probably need to do that for Colorful, but I'm personally not yet on there. All right. Sounds good. Well, podcast listeners, we're really grateful that you've been able to spend some time listening to Jen Kamara talk a little bit about Colorful. Um, we're so glad to have you along this journey while we're talking about the value proposition and the stories of independent schools. Uh, again, shout out to the Merman School for their continued support of the podcast uh, and sponsorship for this entire season. Uh, we are going to be back in the studio soon, putting out yet another episode. Um, and until then, please subscribe, like, and listen to the Straight A's podcast. Until next time.